Christmas is the divine invitation to come and celebrate the Christ child. And that invitation is wrapped up in three specific words. Thirst, come, and drink. That invitation was offered before the Messiah arrived, while he was around and after he ascended. It's always been the same invitation. It's an invitation to come to him because only God himself can satisfy the thirsty soul. Let me show you how this comes together. If you go back with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, the 55th chapter, listen to the words of our Lord as he gives the invitation. Last week we read verses 6 and 7, but if you go back up to verse 1 of Isaiah 55, it says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Isaiah prophesies. Some a hundred years before Israel actually goes into captivity, but he beckons them to come and to drink if they are thirsty. Because there's water that's provided. Why does he offer the invitation? Simply because Israel had revolted against God, rebelled against God. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 2, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manager. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. He goes on and talks about how Israel's rebellion had led them to a place of spiritual idolatry and immorality. And so by the time you come to Isaiah 55, he says, I want you to come. If you're thirsty, come and drink the water of life. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 12, verse number 3, these words are spoken. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Isaiah is giving them hope that they will be able to draw water from the springs of salvation. Now, that verse is very, very important when you come to understand Israel's history. 
Let me show you. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 7. Again, you will see the same invitation. Thirsty, those of you who are thirsty, come and drink. But the context of the invitation involves Isaiah's prophecy. For Isaiah 12, verse number 3, is quoted on a specific day in Israel's history. In John chapter 7, you have a feast. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. It's a time when Israel would go and they'd build thatched huts in their backyard, outside their homes. And they would do this for seven days. And they would do this particularly because it would remind them of their wilderness journeys in the Old Testament, in days of old. And it would remind them that there is coming a Messiah who will dwell among them. As you recall, during their wilderness wanderings, there was a, a, a pillar of fire by, day, or by night and a, and a cloud by day that would lead Israel, a symbol of God's presence among his people. Well, they go out and they build these, these thatched houses with, with palm branches and, and leaves in their backyards to remind them that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's going to dwell among them because the promise is Emmanuel, God with us. So they live in anticipation of God dwelling among them. They do that still to this day. Interesting. If you understand that, you begin to understand Luke chapter 19, when Christ rides into Jerusalem on the backside of a donkey which is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse number 9. And what do the people wave? Palm branches. Now, why are the Pharisees so upset? Why are they so angry? Because you don't wave palm branches at Passover. But that's what they were doing. And they were doing that in recognition that the Messiah had come. That's why they wave the palm branches. That's why there are palm branches that make up the thatched touch, the Feast of Tabernacles, in anticipation of the coming Messiah. That's what made the Pharisees so angry because it means the people were recognizing that this Jesus on the backside of a donkey is their Messiah. And they would not accept that. All that to say in John 7 on this day is a celebration of the Feast of of tabernacles. Very important day. Why? Because during that day, for seven days, the high priest would come down to a place called the Pool of Siloam. Now, the Pool of Siloam is in the southeastern corner of the city of David. So, in order for me to help you understand this, let's just look at this side of the auditorium, the section right here, as the city of David. Okay, take the parking lot behind you would be all of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, and, of course, the Great Temple. And now in the southeast corner was this pool called the Pool of Siloam. And the priest would come and take a pitcher and take water from that pool, and they would 
walk up through the Central Valley, a place that's been um, uh, dug out today, so you can actually travel the exact same pathway that the priest would travel on the Feast of Tabernacles when they would take the water up to the temple. Now, why is this important? Why draw water from the pool of Siloam? Well, Siloam means scent. Literally, it was a pool filled with water sent by Hezekiah's tunnel from the Gahon Springs. But it came to symbolize something for the nation itself. Because the Messiah would be the sent one, the coming one. And so they would take water from the pool of Siloam, the pool of Sent, S-E-N-T, and they would take that water, and they would have this long parade up the central valley, up to the temple, up to the altar. They would walk around that altar and pour that water out on the altar. They would do that for seven days. On the seventh day, they would do it seven times. And as they poured the water from the pool of Siloam on the altar, they would quote Isaiah 12, verse number 3, the verse we just read you, which simply states, therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. They would quote Isaiah 12, 3. And as they did, the choir would sing the Hallel, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They would be singing that. That's the context of John 7, right? Now you understand the words of Jesus. Because the Bible says in John 7, verse number 37, these words, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, the last day, the seventh day, the day they would walk seven times around the altar, having drawn the, the water from the pool of Siloam and poured out on the altar. It was uh, on the last day of that great day, that great feast, where Jesus stood and cried out. This is what he says. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Same invitation. Are you thirsty? Come and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Where does he take that from? Book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58, verse number 11, which states these words. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones, and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Isaiah chapter 44, verse number 1 to 3, says this. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and listen whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. 
For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. So, on the last day of the great feast, in John chapter 7, when they pour the water out, Christ stands up and says, if any man is thirsty, come to me. And I'm going to give you more than just natural water. I'm going to give you spiritual water. I'm going to give you water that just doesn't last temporarily, but water that lasts eternally. Because I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 12, verse number 3. Isaiah 58, verse number 11. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and following. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 1 to 3. This is who I am. Come to me, and I will give you springs of living water. So important. But the invitation is always the same. If you're thirsty, come and drink. Same thing is said in the book of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Why is it without cost? Because the price was paid by the Messiah. It's the washing of regeneration. It's the renewing of the spirit of God. It's by grace through faith that you have been saved. If you are thirsty, that is, do you recognize your need? Do you realize you have a need? If so, you are thirsty. And if you're thirsty, come to me. That involves a turning from where you're going to follow him. It involves repentance. So there's a realization in the invitation. There's repentance in the invitation, and this come to me and drink. In other words, receive all of me, embrace all of me, take all of who I am into you, and I will satisfy your thirsty soul. That's always been the invitation. It's been given before he arrived, when he was around, after he ascended. It will always be the same. Are you thirsty? Then come to me. I will give you living waters, waters that last not just temporarily but eternally. That's the invitation. That's what Israel was waiting for. And so on that, that evening, that dark night in Bethlehem, when the glory of the Lord would shine all around, we bring you good news of great joy. Finally. That which you have longed for. That's what you have thirsted for. That's what you have hoped in has come. For unto you this day in the city of David has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christmas is the divine invitation to celebrate. Celebrate what? Told you last week. The communication of unspeakable joy. This week, point number two, it's the expression of unbelievable mercy. 
the expression of unbelievable mercy. Turn back with me, if you would, to Luke's gospel. Luke, Luke chapter 2. Last week we read verses 8 down through verse number 11. Today we're going to read verses 6 and 7. We're going to go backwards. And I'm going to show you something that you've probably never, ever seen before. But that's okay. It's going to be such a great joy to your heart. Listen to what it says. Very familiar story. We read it all the time, right? We read it in Sunday school. We grow up with it in VBS. We go through churches every Christmas season reading the same story. But the, the little details of the story we seem to miss. But the joy is in each particular word, in each particular aspect of the divine coming of the Messiah. So it says in verse number six, while they were there, the days were completed for her, that is Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. What do we celebrate? We celebrate the expression of unbelievable mercy, or unbelievable mystery. There is so much mystery surrounding the coming of the Messiah. But once you read the text, that mystery then becomes unveiled for you to be able to see the beauty of all that God has done. Now think about this. The mystery is involved in two things, at least two things. One, the conception, and two, the location. The conception of the Christ child and the location of where the Christ child was born. So important. Why? It deals with the conception. Because this was not a normal conception. This was Holy Spirit induced. That's why the Bible says over in Luke's gospel these words. Luke chapter 1. When the angel said to Mary, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is involved in doing something very unique. The Holy Spirit is going to create something within you. Now, hold on to that. That's very important. We know from the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, is the first preaching of the gospel after the first sin, right? That the seed of the woman, right, will crush the serpent's head. Never in the history of man has a woman ever had a seed. The man has a seed. But Genesis 3.15 says it's the seed of the woman, indicating that there's going to be something supernatural that's going to take place. Well, we know the book of Isaiah, the seventh chapter, the 14th verse, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So in that verse, in Isaiah 7, 14, it says a virgin shall conceive. 
And the word there, there is Alma. It's used nine times in the Old Testament. Eight times of the nine, it's used to describe a woman who's never known a man. One time, it describes a young maiden who may or may not have known a man. Okay? Here, it describes a virgin, a woman who didn't know a man. How do you know that? Because he says, a sign will be given to you. A woman having a child is not a sign. Women have children every day, all day, all the time. That's not a sign. But a woman who's never known a man, ah, now that would be a sign, would it not? Of course it would. And of course, Matthew, whenever you want to know what the Scripture means, the Scripture interprets the Scripture. And so in Matthew, it says, in verse number 23, chapter 1, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and the word there is parthenos, which means a woman who's never known a man. So Matthew, through inspiration of the Spirit of God, is interpreting Isaiah 7, verse number 14, by telling us that this woman has never known a man. She is a virgin. She shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You see, Christmas is a celebration not of the child's infancy, but of the child's deity. Very important. So, turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 32, a verse that you might not have thought of. This helps you understand how the Holy Spirit's involved in the creation. Remember, Hebrews 10 tells us, a body thou hast prepared for me. That's what the Messiah says. And so in Jeremiah 31 and verse number 22, how long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth, Barah, out of nothing. He's created something out of nothing. What is that? A woman will encompass a man. Now listen carefully. Every rabbi before the time of the Messiah translated this verse with this fact that the Christ child will be born from a woman who's never known a man. That the woman will encompass a man can be translated two ways. One, she encompasses by holding the, the child in her arm, or she encompasses by having the child in her womb. Either way. But, listen there, here's a, here's a key factor. She shall encompass a man. The word there is geber. It's from the word gibor. We know that God is the el gibor, the mighty God. So the man that the woman encompasses is not a normal man. He is a mighty man. In fact, it's the same word translated in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse number 17, which says, verse number 18, which says these words, O great and mighty God. When you take that and understand that, you realize that the rabbis, before the time of the Messiah, were absolutely correct. They got it right. 
Why change your interpretation? You got it right the first time. That a woman shall encompass a, a mighty man, not just a normal man. That's even accentuated when you go back to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13, verse number 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate. In other words, God, the great God Jehovah, is calling this man, my associate, not a normal man, but a mighty man. This man is not a natural man. He is a supernatural man because this man is my associate. He is my equal. Zechariah is saying that all the shepherds of Israel had led the nation the wrong direction. But this shepherd who's going to come is a supernatural man. He is the equal of God himself. You see, everything about the conception was divine. Everything about the conception was crucial because it proves the deity of Christ, that he was sinless, that there was a body that was prepared for him. It was because the Holy Spirit came and overshadowed Mary and the power of God Most High would cause her to conceive and bear a child. An unbelievable mystery. But the mystery goes beyond the conception to the location of the birth. We know Micah 5, verse number 2. We know that Christ would be born in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. We understand that. If you were to take a pop quiz and someone asked you that question, you'd be able to give the answer. But there is so much more to that answer. I'm going to give you four passages that you need to hold in your memory and connect all the dots to. Four passages that will revolutionize the way you read the Christmas story. Just four. Okay? One in Genesis. One in Jeremiah. One in Micah and one in Matthew. You understand these four passages, it will revolutionize the unbelievable mystery of the Christmas celebration. Go back with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. Jacob's name is changed to Israel because God will strive with him. Jacob has the beautiful wife, Rachel, but on this day, she's going to die. Listen to the story. Then God went up from him in the place, this is Genesis 35, verse number 13, where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing before she died, that she named him Benoni, 
But the father, Jacob or Israel, called him Ben-Hamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over a grave that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. Now, there is so much truth in this death of Rachel. Rachel and Israel are journeying. And on their way to Bethlehem, Rachel gives birth. Remember, she had a son named Joseph, which means to add. When Joseph was born, she asked the Lord to add to her another son. Now she's pregnant. She's about to give birth, right? And as she's giving birth, she's dying. And she begins to weep and cry out. And her maidservant says, do not fear. Why? Because your son, the Lord has given you another son. Very important. So Rachel says, I want to name him Benoni, son of my sorrow. And Jacob says, no. You're going to name him Ben-Hamin, which means son of my strength. And in the birth of that son comes the identity of the Messiah. Benoni, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Ben-Hamin, the son of my strength, or the son of my right hand. Hebrews 1, verse number 3. So in the death of Rachel and the birth of her son comes the identity of the Messiah. And she begins to weep for fear that she will not have another son. But the maidservant says, no, you will. He's going to be born. And Jacob made a pillar there at a place called Migdal Adair, a phrase used only one other time in the Bible. You must understand this. Tower of the flock. Why is that so important? Why is the tower of the flock? Because on the north side of Bethlehem, even today, where Rachel's tomb is, it's called the Tower of the Flock. Why? The Tower of the Flock was a two-story structure, okay? A two-story structure. On the top structure where the shepherds would be, they would be able to oversee the flock, all the sheep. But on the bottom aspect of that tower was where the lambs would give birth. It was a birthing center. Very important. Why? Why is Bethlehem on the north side called Migdal Adair, the tower of the flock? How does that fit into all that's happening? It's monumental to everything that happens. Could it be that you know the exact location of the birth of the Messiah. More on that in a moment. As my Jewish friend used to always say, it's a definite maybe. But think about this, okay? So you have Genesis 35, right? Now, I want you to turn me to Jeremiah 31. 
Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Remember, Isaiah prophesied before the Babylonian captivity some 100 years before it actually takes place. Jeremiah prophesies about that captivity right before it happens, okay? So he's on, he's on the cusp of their going into captivity, and Jeremiah is prophesying. Now remember, Jeremiah is prophesying, and God tells him, listen, Jeremiah, nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to pay attention to anything you have to say, but just keep on preaching. Why? Because they were going off into captivity. Jeremiah begins to preach and preach and preach. Now listen to this. This is your second passage you need to understand. Jeremiah 31, verse number 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Now Ramah is the northern territory of the land of Ben-Hamin. Benjamin, very important. Lamentation and bitter weeping Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Jeremiah takes the story of Genesis 35 of the death of Rachel and it applies it to the nation of Israel and the women weeping for their children are no more. And Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Now, why is this important? Simply because Jeremiah is doing a prophecy about the captivity of Israel into Babylon. And they are weeping, thinking they won't have a son, the Messiah, who will come and rescue them. Remember, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting for hundreds of years, thousands of years, no Messiah. They've gone off into idolatry, immorality. They've revolted and rebelled against God. Now they're going into captivity, and now they're weeping because as Rachel wept for her children, my children are no more, Jeremiah comes with hope. Here's the hope. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. Why is there hope? Remember I read to you Jeremiah 31, 22? Because there's going to be a woman who encompasses a mighty man. There is still hope. It's coming. It's not that your children are no more. The sun will arrive. Now, turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 16. And you're going to see it once again. A quotation from Jeremiah 31. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity. 
from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined for the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. The tragic prophecy of Jeremiah was now being fulfilled at the time of the Messiah's birth. And the women were weeping. Why? Because they were losing their sons. There will not be a son. Where is our hope? Where is our future? Where will it come from? And there was weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, for her child. And as the maidservant would comfort Rachel, as Jeremiah would comfort his people, so Matthew comforts Israel. Because you see, in the death of Rachel, you have a picture of the hope for a nation. And you have a picture of the identity of the Messiah, the man of sorrows, the man who sits at my right hand. That's why he was called Benjamin or Ben-Hamin and not Ben-Oni. Because when you remember the story of Genesis 35, the son will bring joy, not grief. But we're not done. Go to the book of Micah. The book of Micah, for no other reason to figure out where it is in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 4, not Micah chapter 5. We know what Micah 5 verse number 2 says, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for, for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, this one who, who's born in Bethlehem is from the days of eternity. But Micah 4 8 is what brings Genesis 35 together. Because Genesis 4 8, uh, Micah 4 8 is the only other time the phrase Migdal Adair is used in Scripture. And it says these words As for you, Migdal Adair, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. What will come to Migdal Adair? What will come to the tower of the flock? Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Could it be that at the tower of the flock, in the birthing section of that tower, was where Messiah was actually born? Because you see, at the bottom of that tower, they would birth all the lambs that would be prepared for slaughter at Passover. Those lambs had to be spotless and without blemish, correct? So, are you ready for this? When the lamb was birthed, you know what they did? They would take the lamb and they would wrap the lamb in swaddling cloth. And they would take the lamb and they'd place it in a feeding trough in a manger until it learned to calm down. Because they didn't want the lamb to be born 
and to flail all around and trip and fall and break a leg or scrape his leg or scrape anything about him because then it wouldn't be without blemish, right? It wouldn't be without spot. So once the lamb was born, they would take that lamb, wrap it in swaddling cloth, and place it in a manger until it calmed down. Then they could release it. In Luke chapter 2, what does it say? That when she had conceived and she had gave birth to a child, she took him, she wrapped him in swaddling cloth, and laid him in a manger. Why? Because he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He's the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That's who he is. That's why Christmas is the divine invitation to celebrate. Not just the communication, the communication of unspeakable joy, but the expression of unbelievable mystery. That when you begin to connect all the dots in everything that takes place, 500 years before he was born, Micah 4, verse number 8, Micah 5, verse number 2. We know the city, but what about the place in the city? Could it be at Migdal Adair? Where all the birthing, where all the lambs that were birthed for Passover were born, would that be the place where the Christ child was born? And wrapped in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger? 500 years before it actually happened, 1,500 years before that, Genesis chapter 35. Now, 4,000 years from Genesis 35, we're looking back 2,000 years to understand the celebration of the birth of the Messiah. You see, everything about that screams absolute, utter, unspeakable joy because it is an unbelievable mystery that once understood brings to us the greatest of all joy. That's why the scriptures are so important to understand. There is so much here to explain to us what happened some 2,000 years ago at the birth of the Christ child. The one we come to celebrate, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, the brief and simple opportunity we have to celebrate you. For truly, Lord, you alone are worthy of praise. So many things that we can do this Christmas season. But the one thing we need to do is to understand why we are celebrating at this time of year. A celebration that's not to be seasonal, but to be continual. And for those who know the Lord, it continues day after day, month after month, year after year. Not just in December, but all throughout our lives. Because you are the way, the truth, and the life. And you've given us your life. And for that we will be grateful. So we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.